Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Our guest today for Spirit in Action is Sharice Bach, and we met together at Western Oregon University in Monmouth as part of the annual Friends General Conference gathering. Sharice is a rare and exciting breed of activist, with both a Master's of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary and a Ph.D. in Environmental Studies from Antioch University, New England. Sharice has written, spoken, and worked widely on eco-theology, including including her recent time as creation justice advocate with the Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon and their associated group, Oregon Interfaith Power and Light. She was a founding co-clerk of Sierra Cascades Yearly Meeting of Friends, and her new book is A Quaker Ecology, Meditations on the Future of Friends. You can listen to the full, uncut version of this interview on northernspiritradio.org. Cherise Spock joins me in person in Monmouth, Oregon, before a live audience. Sharice, I am so wonderfully happy to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me. And thank you for your presentations to the Friends General Conference gathering where we're meeting right now. How has it been for you? This is your first gathering you've not experienced. So I've had 30 of them. <laughs> this is really fun to be able to be present here with so many great friends and particularly convenient since it's so close to home. It's meeting in Oregon about 40 minutes from where I live. So that's that's very convenient. I'm glad everyone came to my home area and it's been really fun because the last several years I've met a lot of friends on Zoom or online or by email. And so this is great to see people face to face and get to know people that sort of know, but not in person yet. So it's been a good time to connect with people. I find your educational history very interesting, both your master's, I, you're not PhD, are you PhD yet for environmental studies? So, so close. So I close. defended in May and I'm still working on the revisions, you know, going to conferences instead of finishing revisions, <laughs> stuff like that. So which came first, the master's of divinity or your master's of science for environmental studies? Or have these always been parallel? How does this work in your life? I started out with a BA in psychology, then decided that while I really like psychology, I also see a spiritual dimension that is my niche more than psychological care. Then I got my Master's of Divinity. And then while I was discerning what I wanted to do with that, I became aware, more aware of environmental issues and particularly the justice aspects of environmental concerns. Then I decided to do continuing education in environmental fields. And so on my way to my PhD in environmental studies, I got my Master of Science. Would it be impertinent to ask you how much student debt you've worked up? <laughs> <laughs> I try to avoid looking. <laughs> I figure between Princeton and Antioch, where you've got another degrees, it's not inexpensive and even more so for your generation than for my generation. Those Presbyterians actually do pretty well at funding seminarians, so that wasn't too bad. That was one of the reasons I chose to go to Princeton Seminary. <laughs> 
I actually had thought maybe your ecological, your environmental orientation might come. Since you're originally from Oregon State, in some ways it feels like the West at this point in this place on the continent seems made for being connected with the environment. Was that part of your background? I think it was. I grew up in Oregon and I was in a small town outside of Portland, My parents chose to live on five acres or had the privilege to be able to choose to live on five acres. So that was important in my upbringing. My mom always had a big garden and my dad loves hiking and all sorts of outdoor activities. And so, you know, we went camping all every summer and spent a lot of time outside. And I learned how to pick garden vegetables and fruits, even if I didn't really want to as a kid. (laughs) Uh, But now I appreciate it. You know, it's kind of part of the culture here in the Northwest to care about the land and, and especially outdoor activities. So I think there is some of that that's cultural in this area, and that was something that that was a value for my family as I grew up, to care for the land and to enjoy being outside, enjoy other parts of the natural world, not just humans. But I note that when you talked about what got you into the field you're in, you mentioned the justice aspect of it as if that's preeminent. And I noticed on the ecumenical ministries of Oregon that you were referred to as a creation justice advocate. Mm -hmm. So justice again comes up there. So what are the roots of justice for you? I grew up Quaker and that justice piece of Quakerism was really important to me and to my family. I was raised to learn really about the history of Quakerism in various social movements and to be, you know, fairly proud of the role that Quakers have taken in abolition of slavery and women's rights and trying to resolve conflict in ways other than war and violence. So all of those justice issues were important to me. And even though Quakers weren't perfect in any of those areas, and there's plenty of critique that uh, that I and others have been (laughs) really bringing forward in the last few decades as far as how well Quakers have done on all of those justice issues, that's still an important part of why I chose to remain Quaker. So I I grew up in a Quaker family, but then I chose to stay myself as a teenager when I was learning about all of those people and really was inspired by the ways that they chose to at least stand for justice in ways that were generally better than people around them. (laughs) Some of them got kicked out of Quakerism, and some of them had some things that were not perfect about the ways that they considered their justice issues. But overall, it was still inspiring that they were at least trying and they were doing something. And so that was really what made me stay a Quaker and drew me to this tradition. And my own part of the Quaker tradition is Christian. And so I was seeing the the friends in the last several hundred years really trying to live out Jesus's words and you know, loving our neighbors and actually doing the turn the other cheek and love your enemies and all those types of things that Jesus talks about that a lot of Christians don't follow or don't don't follow well. And so, so as I was kind of discerning my own path, that was important to me that these people are at least trying to stick to what they see as kind of the core of Jesus's message of the Jesus way. So then I was trying to discern, okay, you know, as I'm coming out of college and I'm feeling drawn to doing things with faith communities for work, like I worked with youth and I was a peace education coordinator for my yearly meeting for a year. 
Uh, that was kind of at the beginnings of the Iraq War. And so there was a lot of concern about making sure that Quaker kids knew how to become conscientious objectors and why and that sort of thing. So I was helping out with that a lot. But then I was like, what's the justice issue of our time that I should be working on the most? You know, it's great that Quakers across time have worked on these different issues, but what's my thing that I want to focus on or feel led to focus on? And what's the most necessary thing in this moment? That was when I started to recognize like, okay, I care about the environment, but it's not just like, oh, we need to save the polar bears and the whatever charismatic species, but this is a justice issue and it relates to all the other justice issues. If we don't have clean air, clean water, a livable temperature, all those other justice issues are going to get worse and we're not going to have a safe and comfortable place to live. So this is kind of the ground of all of the other justice issues and what interconnects all of them. You're a white cisgender woman. I think those are words I've read that you use. Mm -hmm. So obviously you're concerned also about animals, which are not part of Homo sapiens sapiens. So your heart is bigger. There's more neighbors and family, I think, in your heart than a lot of people include. Is that, again, just part of the Quaker background, or is that something else? Maybe you've had your spiritual experiences in encountering with places on the planet or with animals. The thing that made the most difference to me was the human justice aspect at first when I was choosing to focus on the environment and also other species. So, you know, I think at the beginning, my entry point was really human-centered. And so that's kind of interesting. If you're talking to other environmentalists, some of them want you to just be all species are important and stuff like that. So, and I, I do think that And I think there's room for people to come in from this sort of human-centered approach and that that can kind of be expanded. Or it can just stay focused on humanity and be like, well, we have to have these other species in order for humanity to do well. So I think there's a range of ways that people can enter into a concern for the environment and do good work. I have had lots of experiences of connecting with other species and connecting with God through other species or alongside and participating with other species. So an important symbol for me of God's presence is a monarch butterfly because I was in high school having a kind of a rough time kind of thinking about like, what do I believe? Is there really a God? What path is for me? And I was sitting and praying and journaling in a park and a monarch butterfly came down out of the trees and just flitted around my head several times and just kind of was a symbol of God's presence reassuring me and connecting with me in that moment, making sure I felt nurtured and cared about and connected with. So that symbol of a butterfly, either an actual butterfly or like a a picture or drawing or whatever, has been important to me as a reminder of God's presence throughout my life from that experience So I do appreciate that the rest of the natural world can teach us and can be participants in our community, encouraging us and being connection points with God and with the broader community. And so I do think there are a lot of experiences like that that I could share that, you know, other species are important in my relationship with God or my sense of being part of something larger than myself. I find it real interesting that it was this monarch butterfly that particularly brought you to another species consciousness, especially because of one of the things that you wrote in A Quaker Ecology, Meditations on the Future of Friends. You talk about the double miracle that Jesus did. 
And I just realized that a monarch butterfly has second birth. Mm-hmm. It's born one time, and then it goes through that metamorphosis and becomes a new, brighter creature, I guess, if you would. Um, do mention about the passage in here you talk about. Again, you're doing biblical analysis. You did go to a seminary, Princeton Seminary, and so you undoubtedly have a deeper engagement with Scripture, Christian Scripture, than most of us have. Uh, I've had my own, but... Uh, I didn't go to seminary or anything. I went, I studied physics, but which is the book of creation also. Mm-hmm. Mention, if you would, about that passage, which is so important in this book, A Quaker Ecology. For that book, I was giving a series of talks, and they're called Bible Half Hours, so I figured I should put some Bible into each of the half hours. (laughs) Very perceptive. You are really sharp. (laughs) Yeah. So the first chapter, I was kind of introducing the idea of an eco-reformation, and so I used the passage from Mark 8 where Jesus is healing a blind man, so he touches the blind man once, and he's like, can you see anything? And the guy says, well, I can see people. They look like trees walking around and then touches him again. And he's like, oh, I can see clearly now. And so it's the only passage in the Bible where Jesus has to like try again. Right? <laughs> doesn't quite get it the first time. So that's interesting in itself. And there's a lot of interesting work done on this passage related to how do we be an inclusive community Anyway, that's a whole piece of really important aspect of disability theology that I have a little bit of in this chapter, but that's sort of a different topic. But just to say that that's important to not exclude people from the community if they're blind. But the way that I was thinking of this passage in this regard was about the Eco-Reformation. So this is a term that the Lutherans came up with because of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So 2017, 500 years after Luther nails the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. And so the original Reformation was sort of democratizing Christianity. So rather than sort of this hierarchy of priests and you have to go to the priest to get salvation— you know, the priesthood of all believers, everybody has access. And then, of course, kind of Quakers took that another step and kind of got rid of priests altogether. <laughs> and we're all able to be in relationship with God and, and connect with God without intermediaries. But that was sort of the original Reformation. So the second touch is, I think, where we're at now, where it's not just democratization of people, but like the community of all life is part of the spiritual community. It's not just the people, but all of creation, all of our planetary community, all of life here and wherever life exists, I suppose. That's sort of the second touch where like the first time we got some more clarity from where we had been prior to that as a community of faith, especially in the European context. And then we still needed a little more healing, right? We we got a lot of things wrong. Speaking as a European-American, there were a lot of things that still needed some work and that we didn't quite understand after that first piece of Reformation. So we kind of need that second touch to recognize the community of all life is part of the salvation story, you know, that's part of the healing process that we need to participate in. That it's not just escape to some heaven in the afterlife, but this community that we're creating is the new creation, right? That we're being transformed into the new creation now. 
And that includes not just people, but other species. So that's where I was going with that passage and that kind of metaphor of using those two touches, those two stages of healing. I may be jumping ahead way too far in saying this, but it's one of the things that's been niggling for me. With very good reason, we can look back and we can say William Penn had slaves. He engaged in enslavement. And this is a person who clearly took so many steps past his upbringing and past the culture he was in. And that one seems so glaring to us from this point of view today. I believe that maybe another generation or two down the way, we'll look at people eating meat exactly the same way and say those people thought they were good they thought they were doing good things but they with no need at all on their part they were killing it or they were participating in this kind of horrible capitalism which produces so many victims and deaths and so much injustice what that leads me to do is when i look back at william penn or anybody else I see the faults, and I see how they've still risen above the water level at the age in which they lived. How do you deal with that kind of thing? I mean, some people have said that early Quakerism was actually leading us to perfection. We're being perfected in God. I thought I'd give you an easy question. Yes, there are several pieces to that. So I think one of the first responses is that... Yes, we're we're in still in need of healing, and that's not just going to be done just because we go through an eco-reformation. Hopefully we get a little bit closer to understanding more about who we are in relation to the divine and other people and the land and other species. And we're never going to be perfect. <laughs> There's always room to grow. And I think in some ways that's kind of exciting. Like you never get bored. There's always more to learn and more ways to grow and ways that we can continue to be challenged. It also releases us from the pressure of perfection. People have been identifying characteristics of white supremacy for quite a while. It's kind of rising to the awareness of white people a little bit more recently. And perfection is one of those characteristics of white supremacy culture, needing things to be done perfectly or expecting perfection, which is sort of the flip side of shame that we have to feel ashamed when we're not perfect. So we try to hide our imperfections. For white Protestants, and I include a lot of Quakers in that as sort of Protestants. Um, <laughs> sort of. Who knows what? We're not easily classified. Depending on who you ask. We're like mushrooms, so, you know, it's <laughs> right. like not either plant or animal. Yeah. So as people who are inheritors of the Protestant Reformation and Radical Reformation, this is something that white Quakers have tended to focus on perhaps too much and gets in the way. So I think there's pieces of who we have been in the past that we can kind of recognize weren't perfect. And that's like, of course they weren't perfect because they're human and all of us are imperfect. So we can't expect ourselves to be perfect. And at the same time, we can recognize that was unjust and wrong and not a good idea. And they were involved in something that was clearly not okay and other people at the time recognized that. It wasn't like, oh, nobody had ever thought of that before as far as slavery in your example. People were already saying, I don't want to be enslaved, right? <laughs> so it's not like that was a foreign concept. There's the one piece of not, not requiring perfection and not shaming people or ourselves. 
And at the same time, recognizing that we need to listen, we need to have humility, we need to be aware and be willing to be a part of a community in such a way that we're willing to be challenged and willing to be called out or called in to more and more ethical and just and sustainable behavior individually and collectively. Folks, we're speaking with Sharice Bach today. Her website is sharicebach.com. Any doubts about spelling, come via northernspiritradio.org because you will spell that one correctly. Sharice Bach, amongst other things, is a graduate of Princeton Seminary, Theological Seminary. She's within a hairbreadth of having her doctorate in environmental studies, and she currently has been working as a creation justice advocate for the Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon, and their website is emoregon.org. And I specifically love, because I love puns, I love the fact that they're affiliated in each of the states. They have the Power and Light Ministries. I mean, it's so wonderful that they chose something that was a play on words because religious people are not famous for their humor. Is this a humorous group you work with, Charisse? Sometimes. Long pause. That tells me something. <laughs> I think, you know, Oregon Interfaith Power and Light is uh, kind of the the climate work that I do through Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon, and they're connected to the national organization Interfaith Power and Light. I think that organization has some humor to them and keeps themselves entertained while working on challenging topics such as the ability for humanity to continue to live and thrive on this planet. So you got to have a little bit of humor to be able to handle that, I think. So, sure, we'll give it to them. All you listeners out there, you may have tuned in via different modes. This program, Spirit in Action, is broadcast on some 35 to 45 stations nationwide. So if you tuned in partway in, you might not have heard Sharice Bach's name except once or twice. If you came via podcast, where we're widely distributed as well, in any case, you can come to northernspiritradio.org and not hear only this full program from the beginning, but you can hear all of our programs the last 19 years that we've been doing this and the other program I do, it's just Song of the Soul. So feel free to join us there when you do post comments because we love two-way communications. I don't believe in hierarchy. I do believe in equality. And so I happen to have the microphone right now, but I'd love to give it to you as well. So please join us via that website. Follow it to our guests so you can find the website, sharicebach.com. And you can also make a donation, and that's how we survive. We are sustainable because our listeners support us because we do not take donations from corporations or from government. So we don't have to be influenced by those considerations. So please support us when you come, and please support your local community radio station and advocate for our programs to be carried on your local station if they're not there already. You can help us out and we'll do our best to help you out because the purpose of Northern Spirit Radio is to lift up light and to engage in world healing. Again, Sharice Bach is here. There's a thousand different things I'd like to ask her about. I had never heard before that they would claim an area based on the watershed, although it makes perfect sense to me in a very logical way. 
one of your chapters in A Quaker Ecology, Meditations on the Future of Friends, you talk about watershed discipleship. Explain what that is, because even though you're talking specifically about Quakers here, I have a feeling it's applicable to the general population. Yeah, watershed discipleship is a term that Ched Myers came up with, and he's a Mennonite with some Quaker inclinations, and works with people from all different denominations and indigenous groups and anybody who wants to. But this term, watershed discipleship, moves us from this idea of watershed conquest, where we come in and we claim something and we try to spread our way and uh, make everything kind of the same, to watershed discipleship, where um, intentionally using the language of discipleship that Christians use as like following Jesus, uh, learning to be a person of faith in the tradition that you're part of. So looking at that from not just like, this is something I do with my brain or my spirit to this is something I do with my body, right? I'm an embodied person, my spirit, my intellect, those are incorporated in with my embodied experience. So being a disciple in and of a watershed is kind of flipping that watershed conquest idea on its head. So instead of coming in conquering and dominating, it's what can I learn? How can I grow? How can I learn how to be a participant in this watershed? So I don't know if people know what a watershed is, but you can kind of imagine if you put your two hands together with your pinky fingers together and your bottom of your palms together and imagine that's like a valley with a hill So between your hands is the riverway, and the top of your thumbs is the ridge of the mountains. You can imagine if it rains, the water falls from your thumbs down across your palm down into that crevice between your hands. And so that's like a little watershed where the water runs down into a common place, either a river or a lake. And so each of us lives in a watershed, and it's kind of a nested concept where You know, I live in a watershed right around the local creek nearby where I live. That creek flows into the Willamette River, and so that's kind of a bigger Willamette River watershed. And then that flows into the Columbia River, which is, you know, a huge Columbia River watershed. You can also look at the the whole Mississippi River watershed is just massive. And so when they, the French claimed that whole uh, Mississippi river mouth of the river and then that was the louisiana purchase where we got that whole mississippi river area that was why that was all in one chunk right but we don't really think of watersheds generally we try to think of them as like grids you know and we kind of divide space in american society a lot of times by these kind of straight lines but what if we think of ourselves as part of this watershed part of this community that shares that same water And we also pass that water on to those who are downstream from us, right? So if I take care of my little creek with my community around that creek, I pass that on to the people farther down the Willamette River from me. And we pass that on to the people farther down the Columbia from us. And then that goes into the ocean. So that's the whole world. Wendell Berry reframes the golden rule by saying, do unto others downstream what you would have those upstream do unto you. And so it's this way of recognizing that what we do, what impacts the water and the watershed in which we live, we're passing that on to the people downstream of us, literally, maybe downstream in time as well. And if we're caring for our own place, it's not just like self-interest. It's actually passing 
healing and good life forward to those downstream from us. So by taking care of our watersheds, we're actually helping take care of the planet. I think it was in 1995 and 96 that I started delving into chaos theory because my field, I have master's in physics, I taught physics at university level as well. Those things are of particular interest to me. And when I was introduced to chaos theory and talking about fractals, the first thing that was shared with me about fractals, besides the geometric patterns that one can generate with the right formulae, that the best way to think of it is you think of the little streamlets flowing into the stream by your house, and that stream then looks like fingers of a hand flowing into a larger a river and the watersheds that you described around your area, Charisse. So when I think of chaos theory, when I think of fractals, I think automatically of watersheds. You included talk about fractals in your book, A Quaker Ecology. Why? I didn't finish the last 20 pages because I'm so busy here at the Friends General Conference gathering and my wife has been having health issues. So I didn't get the last 20 pages in where I wanted to learn about fractals some more. Hopefully that's something to look forward to and you get to read that chapter soon. I included that because when I was taking an ecology class, I was learning about kind of all the different types of um, ecological categories, you know, so you've got kind of the population, you've got the community, you've got the individual and the landscape and stuff like that and the colony. So I was thinking about all these different levels ecologically and thinking about our bodies and how an individual body isn't really just one body, right? Like my body has all these tiny microorganisms in it that help it to function, help me to process food and all these little organisms on my skin too that um, <laughs> we don't like to think about, but you know, all of these little bodies that make up our bodies and that help us live that we can't actually survive without other species helping us to digest things. So that's kind of the smaller scale. There are little bodies that, that help make up our one body. And then at the broader scale, we're part of broader bodies, right? We're part of the bodies of our community, maybe our meeting or church or other faith community. And the body politic we call, you know, our social structures, our political structures. Also in the Bible, they talk about the body of Christ, right? So you've got all these people in the church doing different parts of the work. And so you need people that are doing different tasks because if everybody was a hand, then you wouldn't be a body. You would just be a bunch of disembodied hands. You couldn't hands. walk. Right. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't really do anything. So that concept of bodies and bodies at different levels and participating in larger bodies as well as being supported by smaller bodies made me think of bodies as fractals. And so then I was thinking of how we relate to the smaller and larger pieces of the work that we're engaged in and so how... It can really feel hopeless and despairing. It can make us feel paralyzed or apathetic when we are engaged in this huge work of trying to make sure we have a sustainable future, that this planet is a healthy and livable temperature, that we have clean air and water for everyone. This is a huge project and it's massive and scary in a lot of ways. Like, this is not easy work and we're only one person. And yet... We are one person, and so we influence the bodies around us. We influence our own, the small bodies within us, and they influence us. We have a relationship there that's symbiotic, and then we also influence the larger bodies that we're participating in and that we're playing our part in. 
And so I titled that last chapter something about our bodies as fractals of hope and seeing how if we're engaging in steps toward the world that we want to see, steps towards transformation and a new creation, we're embodying hope and that has an impact on the bodies that we're participating in. So whether that's our our ecosystem, our biosphere, our faith community, our national political body, we're influencing all of those by hoping, by expressing hope and actively moving in a hopeful direction. And that has an impact on the larger bodies we participate in to the extent that we should. You know, I think one of the other concerns with environmental activists is sometimes a white savior complex. And so individual people wanting to be the star, you know, the one that fixes everything. (laughs) And so part of recognizing the environmental crisis that we're in is recognizing that the harm has been done by that way of thinking of the kind of white savior or superhero type figure that comes in and saves the day. (laughs) That's the, the mentality that has gotten us to the point where we are. And what we actually need is communal work together towards solutions that work for everybody, right? So by participating through our bodies in the hoped for community, we're creating that change in the bodies that we're part of instead of trying to do more than what our personal share of that work is. I'd love to hear your perspective, Sharice, about what theology really drives our nation. I'm talking about the USA here. There's a whole big world beyond the USA as well. But I have been fond of saying, and I'm happy to have people disagree with me, that the real theology that drives our country is materialism and technology. We're not a Christian nation. Our God is the technology and materialism. So I think people believe in that. They believe technology will save us. And we have a problem with climate that technology will be the solution. And we don't have to worry about faithfulness in other ways because, in fact, we just turn to technology and it'll fix it. What's your perspective on American society in terms of our theological structure, drive, future? I think technology, the way we use technology is more of a symptom than a cause, The cause is more of a culture of domination and control and the desire to have supremacy over others. We have been influenced by European empires. You know, Christianity came under the influence of the Roman Empire and was not originally an imperial tradition. So Quakerism is primitive Christianity revived, (laughs) that they were trying to revive that space that was outside of the imperial power as much as possible and living communally, sharing, you know, in Acts 2 and 4, there are these passages where all these new people are drawn into this amazing outpouring of the Spirit and they immediately share everything that they have and like go and sell their property and give that to the congregation, the gathered community and make sure that everybody has food and they they spend their time feeding each other and sharing the good news that is the good news for the poor. You know, that's literally Jesus's message is good news for the poor, the people who are imprisoned, the people with um, illnesses and disability. This community is for them to have a place of belonging. So it's a message that is completely (laughs) anti-imperial and that's why they killed Jesus, right? Or one of the reasons. Then it was co-opted by the Roman Empire, and then kind of the whole 
Western Christianity has continued collusion with empires to take over the Americas and militarization in the U.S. So I think that culture of domination and control and extraction is really more of the heart of what Americans worship. And that idea of national identity and power and that we deserve, American exceptionalism, of course, uh, that we deserve to extract all the resources for ourselves and that, you know, might makes right. Those sorts of things are based on that kind of domination hierarchy. And it doesn't work forever because there's nowhere else to go. I mean, we're trying to, you know, some people are trying to go to other planets, right, and <laughs> extract resources there because we've run out of places here on this planet to extract more resources. And the system that we have built here requires continuous growth and continuous spread and continuous exploitation of laborers. So that's not going to work if there aren't more laborers to exploit and more places to go and extract. And also, do we actually want that to be our modus operandi, right? Like, let's maybe ask that question of ourselves too. Is that what we actually want, that we're having to participate in this system that exploits our labor and requires us to be in wars to get other people's resources? So I think that's really kind of the American way at the moment, the way that we as a society have organized ourselves based on kind of that imperial perspective of Everything goes to the center. Everything goes to the heart of the empire. We conquer other lands so that they can give us their resources. That's been kind of the pattern of empires in the past and what we're trying to do today. But again, we've run out of space, so we're running into the boundaries of the limits of that strategy, recognizing, wait, this strategy doesn't work forever. (laughs) We need a new strategy that is actually healthy and sustainable and can help the planet last into the future. People are fond sometimes of our ilk, let's say, are fond of talking about the native concern. You have to be concerned what happens for the seventh generation. And from my point of view, the idea is that you need a bigger picture. And so you can't just be looking at your bank account and have that be the measure. What is the proper measure for making our decisions for guiding our future? I'm sure there are plenty of things that we could measure. I think in the biblical tradition, there is also that seventh generation idea. And so I I actually put this in the last chapter there about hope and how um, hope isn't just individual. Like, I hope that I will receive a benefit. But hope in a religious perspective, I won't limit it to just Christianity because I think a lot of religions probably have this, but hope is across generations, right? This is a hope of this community going across time and connecting with a supernatural entity or a spirit and a a community across time. And so that broadens hope from just an individual thing to something that is communal. And we hold that hope together even when we don't individually feel hopeful in a given moment. So as we build that community that can hope over a long period of time, that's real hoping, not just my own kind of wishful thinking. The understanding among the Hebrews, the the Jewish people in the Hebrew Bible, is that they're creating a shalom community. And so they're creating this community based on holistic peace. So shalom is a Hebrew word for peace, but it's not just like absence of conflict. It's like everything working together for wholeness. The intention within that tradition is that the land 
the people, the animals, and God are all in relationship, in right relationship with each other. So the laws in the Hebrew Bible are intended to guide toward a shalom community where that land, you know, they pass that land on in their family as a inheritance that that family is going to have forever. It's not like I'm going to use up this piece and then move somewhere else. But this is, we care for this land because this is our inheritance, whether it's like our own family's piece of land or our communal land. You know, that can get off kilter because people start using those laws legalistically instead of for the care of the community. And so that's why the prophets have to come in and be like, hey, we forgot about caring for the poor and the widows and the orphans. And so we need to recenter on that. And Jesus comes in and says the same thing of like, remember, the heart of these laws are caring for neighbor, loving God, loving your neighbor as yourself. And so the fullness of the law is the purpose of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself, which includes in the Hebrew tradition, the land, that Christians sometimes forget that part, but it's very present in that Hebrew tradition. So that's the heart. That's the whole point. We have laws in order to help us to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. But at any point when they're becoming the opposite of that, when they're used to harm, that's when we have prophets that say, remember, focus back on the people who are being harmed, the people who are in need. So naming over and over the poor, the widows, the orphans, the foreigners. These are the people that we are particularly invited to attend to because they're going to be kind of the the canary in the coal mine, right? The ones that are going to show signs of the community not caring for each other first. So we intentionally care for those who are kind of treated least in our society. And that includes care for the land and ability to rest. So that's one of the major things that American society doesn't do, right? We don't, we don't do a good job with rest. But this is something that was given as a gift on the seventh day of creation. You know, you don't have to believe in a literal seven days of creation, but that seventh day is there to remind us that it's, it's good and important to rest. It's a gift. It's a beautiful thing to be able to have a day of rest. Even God takes a day of rest and everyone deserves rest. So this is a repeated theme throughout the Bible of the seventh day Sabbath and then the seventh year and the seven times seventh year is the year of Jubilee where the whole economy is reset. Land goes back to the family whose land it is. Debts are forgiven. Slaves are freed. They don't exactly have slaves in the way we're thinking of them, but they're like kind of debt slaves, people who have gone into debt and have to work off their debt. They're released and sent back to their family. And the land has rest. So every Sabbath, the land and the animals have rest, as well as the people. Every seventh year, the land is fallow so that it can rest. Every seven times seventh year, the land again gets a rest. And so it's built in that not just the people, but also the animals in the land are given that gift and are intrinsically valued with the right to rest and the right to be participants in the community in a healthy and safe way. So I would say that kind of right to rest might be one of the things that we could measure. And in our culture where we place our value on productivity, we don't have a right to rest. We always feel like we have to be working or some of us always do have to be working in order to have enough food to eat. And we value people that are very productive And if you have the privilege of being able to rest, that's considered like you must be very valuable because you you have the chance to rest, right? Rather than it being something that we just, that it's a gift. It's It's something that all of us have the ability to do and that's seen as a part of life. 
So I think the ability for every person to take rest, of course, that can become legalistic. And that's why we got rid of Sabbath laws that were like people forcing other people to rest on this particular day, you know, was very Christian centric and didn't take into account other people's holy days and all of that. So, of course, we shouldn't use that legalistically. But for everyone to have the ability and the right and the chance to rest, I think, might be one of those ways to measure whether we're being a community that is sustainable and just or not. Folks are speaking with Sharice Bach. I've read and seen online various things that Sharice has written. I've read the book, Quaker Ecology, Meditations on the Future at Friends, except for the last 20 pages. I'm thinking that, Sharice, since you're so near to having your doctorate, you probably have a thesis involved in there. Could you tell me about your thesis, and is this going to be your next book? I studied students who are graduates of seminaries and divinity schools and have done programs related to the environment and sustainability. So I've been teaching in one of those programs for about a decade uh, at Portland Seminary. They have a creation care program that is sadly coming to a close as the faculty person in charge of it is retiring. But there are quite a few seminaries and divinity schools that are working on these issues and thinking about like, what can we do as ministers, as leaders in faith communities? What can we do to encourage uh, better care for the earth? Where does this come from in our tradition? All these kinds of things. And yet, of course, this has been ecotheology. The term was coined in, I think, 1973. So before I was born, and yet here we are, <laughs> um, still not living in right relationship with God and the earth, right? So I wanted to see, like, what are students who have graduated from these programs doing with that? How are they able to live out their care for the environment in their lives and ministries? And then what are they doing to make meaning between their faith and their care for the earth? So I had some sort of like practical things that will help seminaries and divinity schools think about engaging students in these conversations in this field. Um, one interesting finding was that about half the students who were participants in this study, and there were like 50 participants, so about half of them were not really aware of the connection between religion and environment before they went to seminary. So they heard about it in their introductory seminary courses and then decided to study this. And so that's kind of encouraging. I mean, it's a little bit discouraging that nobody had thought about that, but encouraging that they're hearing about it and choosing to study this. So it's not just people who are already kind of like environmentalists who are interested in this field. So that's encouraging. And then the kind of more qualitative portion is more related to eco-spirituality and uh, how are they kind of incorporating their traditions, spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines into their environmental concerns. So some of it is like, you know, taking spiritual disciplines and practices that their community does and giving them an eco-focus. So things like eco-Lent where, you know, the 40 days leading up to Easter when a lot of Christians give up something during that time, they might give up single-use plastics or they might decide to be vegetarian for those 40 days as a, you you know, a practice that relates to their concern of care for the earth. Um, and then they might continue that after Lent because they've practiced it for a while and it's become normal, or they might just do it for that period of time. Or other things that are, you know, season-related that, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, the rhythms of the church calendar cohere with the seasonal rhythms. So kind of bringing those out, making people more aware of the land and the changes in the seasons around them, and then the disjointedness of 
as the seasons are not on their normal patterns that we're used to recognizing that and um, and a lot of use of lament that we as a culture aren't very good at expressing grief and having ways to process that. So utilizing the process of lament and the kind of rituals around lament and confession that are present in faith communities and recognizing that we can use these ancient practices that connect us to our faith community across time to kind of process these feelings of grief and fear and conviction and even shame. And so being able to process those with a community. So those types of things that are practices in the church that they're using for an environmental purpose, and then kind of the other direction of like choosing an environmental practice that they're going to do and kind of giving it spiritual meaning. So things like, you know, I'm going to choose to take public transit instead of driving to work. And I'm going to see that as a spiritual practice. You know, that's not a traditional spiritual practice in any church, right? But it's something that they can choose to do as a personal practice that they're giving spiritual meaning to it. And maybe they're praying for the other riders in their train car, or they're using that time to study something spiritual or They're just being aware in their own mind of like, I'm doing this for my conviction that, you know, this is a leading from the spirit or whatever they call it. So, you know, using those eco actions as opportunities to connect spiritually and and make spiritual meaning. So that's kind of the meaty part of my dissertation. As for if it will be a next book, it may be, I think I'll put out several of the chapters as more like articles. And then I do want to write a book on eco-spirituality and eco-spiritual practices, some of which will kind of be drawn on like the things that people are transforming from tradition into a more ecologically conscious way of practicing that spiritual discipline or practice and some that are like here are some ideas of ways you can do you can practice environmental care with a spiritual meaning and I think these types of practices help like I was I think I was saying earlier about like our individual actions are necessary but not sufficient so of course these personal actions aren't going to totally change the global trajectory but they do help us to be able to have meaning and to be able to start taking steps in our own life to care for the community of all life around us and have kind of a reason to take these steps so and particularly for if you're working with a group whether it's like a green team in your faith community or interfaith power and light or green faith or other organizations that are helping people of faith do these types of things together, those can have broader impact when we do them all together than just me choosing to have, you know, to take one action by myself. I think historically, at least in in my lifetime, last 50 years, there has been a division, maybe even a wedge between those people who are scientifically oriented and those who are faith-driven, such that I think some scientific people think that People who are spiritually driven are fluffy and not serious about that. You are unique in my experience to this point in my life in that you have your Master's of Divinity and you have your Master's and very soon your Ph.D. in Environmental Studies. What's your perspective, having lived within the studies, about the respect, mutual or otherwise? There are a lot of scientists who have respect for or are members of faith communities and a lot of people of faith who have respect for scientists. But I do know that that is definitely true, that there is kind of a division stereotypically between people of science and people of faith. That's unfortunate, I think. You know, of course, 
the disciplines of science in the West anyway, most of the more recent founders of different scientific fields were definitely Christian, you know, and they didn't see a conflict necessarily. And I think more recently, there are scientists who are recognizing the aspect of mystery and awe and curiosity and jumps of insight that don't come from like scientific method, like where you can just see the direct line of like <laughs> study and experiment and results, but sort of intuition that you can't really explain scientifically. So I think that there's a little bit more of an overlap in some people and some spaces where just the universe is so amazing and it's so awe-inspiring that like whether you call there being a supernatural you know whether you think it's related to the supernatural or not there's something deep and connecting and that goes beyond just the individual and connects us to something outside of ourselves something greater than ourselves as we're doing science and as we're making these incredible discoveries so whether that's looking at things that are microscopic and just so amazingly intricate and beautiful or, you know, the whole cosmos and the more we discover about the stars and everything that we can learn and see and the interconnections that we're discovering in ecology between the different species and their different niches. It's just like, this is amazing and this is beautiful and it's awe-inspiring and there's so much mystery and our own curiosity kind of drives that in a, in a positive and joy-driven way. And so, so I think these are common to people of faith and people of science that when we are pursuing those disciplines in a way that leads toward discovery in a joy-filled way, in a connecting way, in a relational way, both of those disciplines, both of those ways of interacting with the world can lead to joy and awe and mystery and curiosity. But they can also both lead to, you know, elitism and shutting each other down and, you know, my way is right and your way is wrong sort of mentality, too, of the kind of competitive and domineering perspective. So I think it really depends on the person and the way that they're approaching life and not necessarily the discipline. It's both sobering and inspirational, what you've written, what you're thinking, what you're engaging your life energy doing. And I want to thank you for doing that and for joining us today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. And again, folks, we've been speaking with Sharice Bach. Her website is sharicebach.com. I'll spell it one time here. Otherwise, come via nordenspiritradio.org to connect. C-H-E-R-I-C-E-B-O-C-K.com. The link's on nordenspiritradio.org. You can find link connections with the Ecumenical Ministries of Oregon, affiliated with Oregon Interfaith Power and Light, and other places. And you can track down her book, A Quaker Ecology, Meditations on the Future of Friends. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 